How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. All right, guys, we're getting into pretty dicey territory, so straighten up and hey. don't talk about how horny you are right now. Just, <laughs> like right now? Exactly right now. I've got it playing in the background. <laughs> i watched this i'm talking about, about speed racer obviously of oh course. yes <laughs> okay animated cars really get my goat <laughs> not christina ricci no no no, God, the, no the curves on the Mach john Dive. goodman ladies <laughs> <laughs> and gentlemen welcome to the curves of john goodman podcast. and people are going to think they they clicked on the wrong episode and that they listened to the speed racer episodes like did i miss like four episodes of this oh, series guys why are they talking about it. speed racer We'll talk about the lesbians first, and then we'll talk about John Goodman's sexiness. Well, we got like three movies in between that you may have heard of. Mm. Oh, no. <laughs> let's start the show. Oh, yeah. Let's start the show. Well, hello. I am Gary. Wait. No. Well, hello. And welcome to Cinema Shock. This is the <laughs> podcast that explores the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horde. And I am co-host Justin Bishop. Oh, man. Todd, you're an official co-host now. You need to introduce yourself. Oh, let's yeah. Try that again. I'm co-host yeah. Justin Bishop, and I'm co-host Todd A. Davis. Yeah, you've really all been an, always been an official co-host. It was just funnier <laughs> to say that you were a special guest for 50 episodes in a row, right. or whatever we're up to. I don't, I don't think we're quite that far into it since we started. Maybe doing you don't introduce yourself anymore. Maybe you just say, "And I'm Johnny, and I have the keys." We can do it <laughs> no. twice an episode now. Oh God, no! Very don't encourage him, Gary. Yes. <laughs> Keeper of the keys. So anyway, welcome to episode one of our series on the Wachowskis. Uh, we're going to be rolling through their filmography for basically the rest of 2021, assuming that we all make it to the end of 2021. Uh, we are going to be, yeah, we are going to be actually, I think this, this should take us, I think till probably like the first week of the new year, I believe. So all the way through the holidays, uh, you know, so no Christmas, sorry, no Christmas uh, series this year. Like no horror last year, on Halloween, but... no Christmas movies. What is going on? No horror on Halloween, but we might do a little Halloween special. I got a little something in mind. Oh, it might involve Todd's favorite horror movies. Fine. Oh, here we go. <laughs> so you guys, uh, you guys have heard of these filmmakers, the the Wachowskis, uh, Lana and Lily Wachowski. They're two of the most influential filmmakers of all time, mostly because of one movie that came out in 1999. Their uh, their film, a uh, little movie called The Matrix. You may be familiar with it. Uh, it that, that movie, movie. was mm. groundbreaking in both its effects and its storytelling. And it's influenced everything since then for the past 20 plus years. Everything from action cinema to commercials and video games and comic books. Like there is no pop culture, I don't think, in the last 20 years that has not somehow been influenced by The Matrix. That's fair. That's fair to say. Yeah. But the, the interesting thing about the Wachowskis is that they're their filmography outside of the matrix is kind of a different story. A lot of people even consider them one hit wonders. Their sequels to, to the matrix were met with a, 
kind of less than stellar reception. And then their post-Matrix films like Speed Racer, Cloud Atlas, Jupiter Ascending were all uh, very ambitious, but very costly box office bombs. Every one of them. So in this series, we're going to explore the careers of these filmmakers and, and kind of in a hope to shine some light on some of the thematic through line of their work. And I'm calling the series uh, The Wachowskis in the Cinema of Fluidity. Uh, I, I was trying to come up with a name for their series, and our, our buddy Miles actually kind of gave me some ideas uh, some uh, regarding the themes of their work. And I thought this worked really well because that fluidity in that title kind of refers to their, their treatment of gender, sexuality, identity, but also genre and their visual style. Like they, they do not let themselves get stuck in one place. Also, a lot of wet stuff. It's a everywhere. lot of wet stuff, even between <laughs> between this movie and The Matrix. A lot of Just, fluid. But before we get to their bigger budgeted, better known films like The Matrix, we've got to go back to the beginning and discuss their debut film, the 1996 neo-noir thriller, Bound. Hi. My name is Violet. We heard you working in here, and I was just wondering if you'd like a cup of coffee. An open invitation like Violet comes once in a lifetime. What the fuck is... Corky, this is Caesar, Caesar Corky. I thought... Fucking dark in here. She's making an offer. So Caesar's mafia, huh? I need your help, Corky. Only a fool would refuse. It's over two million dollars. Because all money... Oh my God. Look at this shirt. It's ruined. Is good money. You're asking me to help you fuck over the mob. I'm gonna ask you 10 times. I want out. Where's my money? If their plan succeeds. Oh God. If they survive. Sweet Jesus. If they can trust each other. My guess, it was a job. Maybe the Carpellas. All part of the business. They are bound. I think I'm a dead man. I want in the back of the head. For the pleasure. You were nothing before you met me. Violet! You were nothing. You had nothing. For the money. I want what's mine. I want half the money. For each other. What did she do to you? Everything you could. Bound. So real quick, before we get going, I wanted to give a little disclaimer on this because there's a big elephant in the room when you're when you're talking about the Wachowskis. Uh, I'm sure most of our listeners know that the Wachowskis are transgender women. So throughout this series, I will be referring to them by their chosen names, not by their birth names, unless it is somehow appropriate while discussing their history, regardless of what name they might have been credited under when the film that we're discussing was released. Uh, so even though in this film, for example, in 1996, they were actually credited as the Wachowski brothers, we're going to refer to them as Lana and Lily because that's who they want to be referred to as. Uh, I think to do otherwise would be disrespectful to them and would be disrespectful to, to others in the transgender community and the LGBT community as a whole. So I just wanted to get that out of the way before we get into the series for the next however many weeks we're going to be working on this. That's how we're operating. 
in the spirit of fairness, just to uh, elaborate more, Todd's agreed to take the other side of this, and he's going to dead name the fuck out of everybody he can throughout the entire series. Todd's the heel. Todd's the heel. (laughs) Oh, I have to put it. It's it's actually. I think. I think actually that would be more effort to to, to, to do that. Like, okay, and be an asshole. Here we go. I mean, it was a. It's a lot of effort um, to look back at old interviews, like from the late '90s, and try to not get their names mixed up uh right. like their 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 uh their you know new chosen names mm. mixed up when i'm reading an interview that was printed in 1996 1998 or whatever under their their old names so it's it got a little confusing i had to write myself a little note uh as, oh, as yeah. i was reading interviews but we figured it out you know we got well, it we got it and it's so funny because uh, last I watched the movie last night with my wife. And then, you know, I was just kind of like, you know what? I'm down to just go ahead and watch the first Matrix movie. Yeah. And so watch the first Matrix movie. And I have the, the Blu-ray box set of the Matrix and started. I, we are going to get to bound in just a second. I promise <laughs> everybody. But I started going through like the little booklet and it says, you know, Larry and Andy, Larry and Andy, Larry and Andy all over it. And I'm just yeah. like, oh, I thought this was newer. I thought... <laughs> Cause I hadn't really looked at the booklet and then started going through. It was like, Oh yeah, it's all over this. And then started listening to some of the interviews as well. Same thing. Like, Oh, okay. This was older than I thought it was. <laughs> yeah. It's the same way on the bound Blu-ray. Um, okay. Some of the interviews you can tell were more recent mm. uh, and some you can tell were older, just, just based on how, how the, the directors are being referred to by actors and such. When yeah, did the, true. when did the Blu-ray of bound come out? Well, the, the Blu-ray that I have is it's by Olive Films, and it's pretty recent. Okay. But it's some, of, some of the special features were ported over from an Arrow release from the UK from a few years ago. Yeah, oh, the okay. commentary track on it is definitely a older one because Much it's... Much older, yeah. Yeah, you know, they're talking about Laserdisc, basically. So yeah, yeah, right, right. You know, okay. You can tell. But what Justin's trying to say there in that disclaimer is that we understand that we are three... Well, white bearded dudes that are all three as far as i know hetero we realize that that can be a, a, a tricky situation when we're talking about gender fluidity and uh, homosexuality and a lot of all those other things so we're trying to approach it respectfully no matter how many jokes i make and to be fair we're making an effort to include people from outside of our normal little bubble here in the show for this series and I, we did have a woman scheduled that is a lesbian for this episode, but something came up. She wasn't and unable to join us. And so in respect to that, I have removed 75 to 80% of the scissoring jokes that I had lined up <laughs> for this. So, so we still have like 20 to 25% left. Yeah, yeah. So okay. they're still there. Right. I can't promise that you won't hear a scissoring joke at some point. Uh, <laughs> listen, I was going to start listen, the episode with Gary Me Timbers. This is going to be a great series. But <laughs> and see, it's jokes like that, guys. It, guys, it's quality of the scissoring jokes, not necessarily quantity. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, so we're gonna we're gonna. That's have to important. Help. So the the Wachowskis are famously private people uh there there aren't a ton of interviews with them there are more early on in their career probably around the time of bound and the matrix and there are on their later films but they've always been kind of quiet about you know their background and things like that in fact in the official production notes for the matrix it only said that the two this is a quote from the production notes that was released by warner brothers the two have been working together for more than 30 years little else is known about them (laughs) <laughs> which of course is them playing on that that mis that kind of mysterious vibe 
but I did dig into it a little bit and I, and I was able to find a little bit about them. So before we get into the movie proper, a little bit of background on the filmmakers as, as we usually like to do here. So Lana Wachowski was born in Chicago in 1965 while Lily was born about two and a half years later. And they spent most of their pre-Hollywood life in South Chicago, where they attended a magnet school that was known for its performing arts and science curriculum. And the two were, I mean, I don't know how else to say it. They were fucking nerds. Uh, They were into Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, They worked in the school's theater and AV programs, but always on the tech side of things. They weren't like actors. They were the cameramen, the lighting, things like that. And after graduating high school, uh, Lily went to Emerson College in Boston, where she took film classes there. And Lana went to Bard in upstate New York, but both ended up dropping out after two years and returning to Chicago, where they earned a living by starting up their own business. It was a house painting and construction business. Uh, and while they were doing that, they were writing a little bit for uh, on the side for a little operation called Marvel Comics. That's news to me. I didn't know that. Yeah, they did. Yeah. It was, wow. a, it was a company that closed down pretty quickly and <laughs> yeah, never, yeah. never were, did anything like that. They were would lead floundering you to believe. in the 90s, and it's not a surprise that they closed their doors. <laughs> no, no connection to film at all. <laughs> so they started working for Marvel in 1993, uh, writing several issues for a comic called Ecto Kid, uh, which was part of this short-lived Marvel imprint called Razorline that was created by Clive Barker of all people. Uh, Ecto Kid was this comic about a 14-year-old kid whose mother was a mortal and whose father was a ghost, a uh, ghost dad, uh, which gave him the ability yeah! to tra- His father <laughs> to was Bill Cosby. So <laughs> this is going a lot of great places. <laughs> and, but, but being the offspring of a mortal and a ghost gave him the ability to travel within an interdimensional world called the Ectosphere. Uh, okay, this so- comic lasted like nine issues uh, with the Wachowskis writing the final six issues of the run. Although the, they did write the stories together, full credit was only given to, to Lana. So see if you got those superpowers, you go to New York City. That's the best, that is the best Bill Cosby impression the Avengers. <laughs> you get the pudding pop. Oh my God. That's so, great. Ecto Kid does sound very wet too. So that feels perfect. <laughs> covered in plasma mm-hmm. so while the, the razor line imprint only lasted about a year but their work on ecto kid must have kind of impressed uh, clive barker uh because they followed up ecto kid by writing for two additional comics this time for another marvel imprint called epic comics and those comics were clive barker's hellraiser and clive barker's nightbreed which were sort of comics set within the world of of the movies and stories by clive barker Kind of cool. I'd kind of like, I'd honestly like to read the Hellraiser and, and Nightbreed ones. I think that I know it sounds rad. fun. I mean, I yeah. actually, I swear to God on an old episode, if we dug it up without even knowing this, or maybe I did at the time, but I remember telling someone that the Wachowskis should do Hellraiser. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, it was when we, maybe it was on our Hellraiser episode. Maybe it was, maybe it was on our Hellraiser episode, but it just felt like the vibe thinking about the matrix and everything else. It just felt like they would totally get that like interdimensional creepy. Yeah, it, like... it makes sense. Honestly, when you think well, even, about it that way, even some of the visual aesthetic, a lot of leather, you could, you could, yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> so the story of how these two went from being house painters and part-time comic book writers to full on filmmakers all comes down to the influence of one man 
a man whose name you will hear time and time again on this series if you listen to enough of it, oh, and yeah. it's Roger Corman. I don't think we'll ever even have to do an actual Roger Corman series. No. First of all, it would last seven years of the podcast <laughs> to cover everything that Roger Corman has produced or directed or written. Oh, yeah. But uh, I feel like you you understand the influence of this guy just by the people he influenced or that worked for him, mm-hmm. that, that he... Uh, shepherded that he mentored uh but in this case they didn't like meet roger corman and become protégés they read a book uh it's a book that i've got on my bookshelf in the other room right now uh called how i made 100 movies in hollywood and never lost a dime it's roger corman's memoir and it inspired the wachowskis to try writing a movie script of their own so they did and they tried and they tried to write something that they thought would kind of be corman-esque i guess you would say looks like they did more with that book than you did uh, I have not read it. <laughs> so definitely, did. I said it sitting on my shelf. I said it, didn't say I've read it. <laughs> Wait a minute, you got to read the books? Yeah. Well, I mean, damn. They, no but it does look cool on the shelf. You just hope though. they like transfer information into your brain. <laughs> I'll read it one day. That's what it's there for. Like if I photo, I can't read every book that I own. But the the script that they wrote was called Carnivore, and it was about rich people getting eaten by cannibals eat the rich that was their thing that was was the that's the joke but Uh, this is not by the way the roger corman produced series uh the dinosaur classic cardasaur which for some reason is how i read that as at first and i went through the whole week wrote carnosaur i went through the whole week (laughs) thinking the wachowskis wrote carnosaur and uh, i was super excited about it so i went over the notes again today uh, is that, no, no, is that this, script out? Is that script out there floating around somewhere? Cardasaur? Uh, yeah, probably. Uh, <laughs> no, um, not to my knowledge, Todd. I don't know. I, but I, but I don't think so. Uh, it's pretty obscure. It did make and, me revisit Cardasaur on IMDb, by the way. And uh, it was Roger Ebert's worst movie of 1993. Anyway, back to oh, the Wachowskis. That's unsurprising. <laughs> <laughs> but this this script never got made. Uh, Carnivore never got made. Uh, but it did get them noticed by Hollywood. It got them, it kind of got them a deal uh, with Warner Brothers. And in 1995, Warner Brothers bought a script from them called Assassins. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis came, another name that you'll probably hear a lot on this podcast. I feel like we, we bring him up a lot as well. But he came on as an executive producer. And here's another familiar name. Joel Silver also came on as a producer. Oh. I was going to mention about Corman and even Dino. Their genius is we're always like too far behind the scenes. Nobody will ever do a series on us. So their genius is, Every podcast is a Roger Corman podcast. Yeah, I'm sure that was their thinking throughout their career is hoping that we would do uh, to discuss them on on our podcast. You laugh. There was a a marketing meeting, I'm sure. sure. Roger Corman. Roger Corman had a lot of foresight. So So this uh, script Assassins, it was originally set to be directed by Mel Gibson, uh, but he dropped out to direct a movie called Braveheart instead, which I think did okay, uh, which led whatever left the project in the hands of Lethal Weapon director Richard Donner. Which makes sense. That's Joel Silver and Richard Donner, yep. right? Yep, mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. So when Richard Donner came on board, he hired a screenwriter named Brian he- Helgeland. I always say his name wrong. Brian Helgeland to do some pretty extensive rewrites on the script, transforming the project into a big budget action vehicle with Sylvester Stallone in the lead. Have you guys seen Assassins? Yes, I own Assassins. Yeah, I have not. I haven't seen it in years. Uh, it's it's Sylvester Stallone, Antonio Banderas, and 
uh, Julianne Moore. Is that right? Yes, Gary? it's Julianne, Julianne Moore. Moore. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Uh, I remember enjoying it, but this was also the mid nineties and I was young and stupid. So I don't know how it holds <laughs> up. Um, but the rewrites on it were so extensive that the Wachowskis said they were unhappy with it. They actually unsuccessfully tried to get their names taken off of the film. Wow. For their first movie. And Joel, Joel Silver calls them up. He's like, what the fuck are you guys doing? <laughs> like, this is your first movie to be produced in Hollywood. And you're trying to get, you're trying to not get credit for it, regardless of what you think. Like, this is still, yeah, this is still a feather in your cap. Put yeah. this on the resume. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I was looking at the notes and just like, don't bury the lead here. Assassins exist because of the Wachowskis. I don't think that movie's fun as hell. So thank you, Lily and Lana, even though you don't credit for it. I find that movie very fun. I remember it being fun, but I always mix it up with The Specialist as well, which was another Stallone movie that came out around that time with, with Sharon Stone, I think. Yeah, that feels yeah. right. Yeah. The, I guess the script that the Wachowskis had written was apparently just too dark for the kind of movie that Richard Donner wanted to make, which was mm-hmm. he just wanted to make kind of a more straightforward action movie. So according to Lana, they were, uh, this is a quote, they were interested in the notion, they being the Wachowskis, they were interested in the notion of pocket moral universes and the way that even people in an everyday world can have a separate morality inside of their pocket universe, which is an idea that had it been executed would have fit in very well with the rest of their filmography. Mm. Meanwhile, Joel Silver and Richard Donner were like, hey, remember Lethal Weapon? Do that. Yeah, but with Stallone. <laughs> with Stallone. <laughs> Less finger banging, more funny and dying from shotgun funny? wounds. Yeah, yeah. Assassins is funny. It has like is funny it? moments in it. And like Antonio it. Banderas is very like, he's off the wall. Like, Oh, I thought you were crazy. saying that there was finger banging in Assassins. I was like, no finger not, banging in Assassins. That's, that's, not how you, that's not how you kill people. I mean, unless I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> it's, well, it's one of those uh, pressure points. Kind of oh, okay. okay. All right, all right. All right. You're yeah. just not like, doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> so while the, the Writers Guild would not allow them to have their names removed from the film, uh, the experience did leave them with a new perspective. They knew that they were not going to make it as writers in Hollywood because they couldn't see their scripts being turned into something that they didn't want it to be. Uh, they didn't want other people tinkering with their ideas. So they decided, hey, if we're going to stick in Hollywood, we're just going to have to become directors ourselves. So the opportunity to do so would come along about a year later with Bound, the movie we're talking about today. So you see what happened, but despite the fact that the script had been changed drastically, Assassins ended up making a lot of money, uh, which meant that Dino De Laurentiis was pretty fond of the Wachowskis, and he gave them a chance to direct their next script, which was a small kind of self-contained neo-noir with a small cast. Now, yeah, there, if you if you look at that book, making a feature film on a used car budget, that's yeah. one of those books that's just been oh, yep. you know, redone, redone, redone. That one over I have read. Over. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's actually great for writers who yeah. you know kind of want to study that type of uh, structure. But mm-hmm. part of that structure is uh, basically a br- blueprint for movies like Bound, especially Bound, because you've got it's a tight cast, essentially in one location. I mean, it's it, the majority of the film takes place in two, two adjoining two apartments. apartments. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So in later interviews, Joel Silver has actually said that they allowed uh, the Wachowskis to direct Bound as a sort of audition piece for the Matrix to see if they could run a set because uh, they had already written the Matrix at this point. They'd already started writing the Matrix and working on that well before they started on Bound. And now Lana later said that Joel just made that up. 
<laughs> probably because it makes it for a good story. But uh, you, you'll see that information a lot when you start reading about Bound, that this was an, an audition for The Matrix. But the Wachowskis kind of refute that, saying that's not, that's not really true. Maybe they don't know everything. Maybe that's what Joel Silver was thinking. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. That's true. I mean, that could have been in the back of his mind, but I mean, the, the information kind of does support it of like, hey, let's see what you can do kind of on the indie side of right. Yeah, I mean, you know, this- before before we dump all this money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because- I was I was joking. But yeah, now that you say that, yeah, I mean, how do you get a job directing the Matrix uh, hey, when you've right. never done anything yeah. before? Yeah, yeah. No, especially, makes- especially as your first directing. To- exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've never been on a film set before. Like they, they weren't film students. They weren't working on student films in film school and things like yeah. that. They were comic book writers, yeah. you know, uh, there's nothing about that that proves that they can run a set. Although I, I'm going to say it's pretty obvious that they did know that w- what they were doing when they when they finally got on so oh, yeah that's gonna be a big part of every story you hear about anybody in this movie will will tell you that yeah so they they had the idea when they were writing bound they had the idea to write a story about how one might see a woman this is this is kind of almost a exact quote from them in interviews but uh, pretty close so what what they say when they were writing this they're like this is a story about how you might see a woman on the street and kind of make assumptions about her sexuality but how those assumptions might be wrong Uh, They wanted to kind of play with stereotypes and they wanted a story that was filled with twists and turns. You'll see Billy Wilder's name and that kind of his uh, brand of film noir thrown around a lot uh, when the, the influence behind Bound is being discussed. So they write this script. It gets passed around to multiple studios and a lot of them showed interest, but only if the Wachowskis changed the character of Corky to a man, which they refused to do. Uh, saying that they said, quote, this movie's been made or that that movie's been made a million times. So we're really not interested in it. And they stood their ground. They could have easily gotten this movie made because it's a very good script. If they had changed Corky to a man and made it a more uh, traditional love story. But Mm -hmm. that's not the movie they wanted to make. Yeah. Even even this early, so you can already see them like uh, bucking uh, conventions of of what people expect. And I mean, this is a good uh, enough point as any to mention too. You know, the, the the music in this, which is really great. There are some good points in it, but it's a, it's by a guy named Don Davis, and mm-hmm. uh, who who did the and would end up doing the Matrix and stuff with them as well. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, he he worked for cheap. This is the story of everything on this movie, or a yeah, lot of things for movie. cheap. You know, the song that they wanted to use was. Uh, girl from Ipanema uh, and they couldn't afford it. They wanted like Frank Sinatra's version of it. And it just goes into play for what you were just saying, just because, uh, you know, I, I wasn't super familiar with that, although I listened to Frank Sinatra more than you'd think. But uh, essentially that song is about a guy wishing he could tell a girl he loves her because he sees her walking down the street every day. And like he's he's attracted to her. She's always walking along, basically. And he like it's the song you hear in every Italian restaurant in America. Right, right. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, so he he's like, you know, it talks about him like casting a glance or something, but she never sees him or something. But I can totally see how that song matches up because, like you said, he's making assumptions that she'd even be interested if she could see him. But maybe right, she's, exactly. Maybe she's a lesbian. Yeah. And and eventually, uh, Dino De Laurentiis agreed to finance the film with a budget of six million dollars. The, the way that they tell the story about the meeting with Dino is like he's reading the script. Violet, she is a woman? Yes. Corky, she is a woman? Yes. I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> Dino's in. Dino's in. He apparently had 
and later on in the process, he tr- kind of tried to get them to change uh, one of the characters to a man. But at first, like the fact that it was two lesbians was like, Dino was like, yes, let's do this. Let's make a lesbian movie. Let's go. Yeah. I mean, Hollywood is known for, you know, seeing that something is successful and then doing 30 knockoffs of it. But, you know, for a story that's, there's not, a, I mean, it's a fairly standard kind of heist slash romantic sure. movie here. I would, I would think anybody would want to jump on, well, okay, bad turn of phrase, jump on this, but, um, <laughs> but I would think uh, a studio would jump at the chance to make something like this because those characters are just more interesting, more complicated. Sure. They're, they're, there's it's more a unique way of telling a familiar story. Right. And uh, the, I, I mean, I think that's dismissing to... though, the idea that there's two lesbians here. And at the time, <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, I mean, it's, at no, the you're time, right. This, this is the is mid-90s. Taboo. This is, yeah, not, this is right. the mid 90s. Well, I was just about to say back, uh, you know, not long around the same time, the makers of Spawn, you know, they changed one of the characters to, um, you know, they changed uh, the race of one of the characters because it made the relationship relationship more interesting deeper and more complicated and i'm like yeah that's a great thing i think that's a great thing to do you know yeah but hollywood's always a little bit scared about anything that's not what they've what's been making money already and this is before something like boys don't cry Mm -hmm. uh, which which came Mm -hmm. out two or three years after this uh and was a major awards contender this is kind of not that obviously there have been gay and lesbian films essentially since the beginning of the medium right but uh which i I think i mentioned on a few few episodes ago the celluloid closet incredible documentary if you want to learn more about the history of lgbt representation in films but they weren't in the mainstream not not that this movie is but uh not like they would later become right Mm. right around this time was the time when uh on I mean, there had literally been a scenario on Melrose Place where there was a character named Matt who had like kissed his boyfriend in a scene and uh, like advertisers were pulling out. Yeah, like, I think they had to take the scene out. They, they, they had the, to rip the, the scene out. Kissing. Like they could not air the scene. And this is like right around the time, like mid 95, 96. Mm, yeah. yeah. And so, so, I mean, you'll, you'll see there's a, there's a huge double standard at this time for, for this kind of thing. I mean, yeah. now l- luckily we're we're moving past that it feels like but it's uh it, it's not as easy as you'd think at this point to have right. two gay people expressing sexual relationship yeah and and the trouble with that didn't stop just in getting the movie financed they had the green light they had the money but they had a lot of difficulty when it came to casting the film because very few actresses were really interested because they didn't want to play lesbians uh, so they had a hard time casting it for the very same reason the uh, so the part of Violet was originally expected to go to uh, Linda Hamilton uh, of all people, which you would think that the role of Corky would go to Linda Hamilton. Uh, it just seems to fit her persona that had been established prior to this, uh, yeah, especially in Terminator how, Two. Yeah, I yeah. was about to say, wait a minute, what? <laughs> but <laughs> like, she was. But Linda Hamilton wanted to play against type about uh, the type of roles that she had been cast in recently. So that's why she wanted to play Violet at first is because she wanted to play something different than what was expected of her. Uh, But, and so she was cast as Violet or, or very close to being on board. And Jennifer Tilly read for the role of Corky because Jennifer Tilly was known. I mean, she, she was still fairly early in her career, but she had already won uh, an Oscar at this point for her role in uh, uh, Bullets Over Broadway, a Woody Allen movie. Uh, mm. But she had always kind of played the sex pot kind of character, the girly girl. Yeah. So she wanted to play Corky. So because that was going against type. So she read for that. 
And they were kind of on board with her playing Corky. And she was really excited for the role because it was such a departure from anything she'd done before. Well, fast forward a little bit and Linda Hamilton drops out for whatever reason, creative differences, whatever. I don't, I'm not sure why she dropped out, but you know, it's one of the millions of things that causes an actor to not be able to be in a role. And they auditioned Gina Gershon, uh, who was unknown at the time. I think at the time they were auditioning for this, like Showgirls wasn't out yet. Not that Showgirls would have helped her, but still, even though she is, as we've discussed, outstanding in that movie. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, she was an unknown actress at the time. So she auditions for the role of Corky. And the filmmakers then kind of went to Jennifer Tilly and asked her if she'd be interested in playing Violet instead. And Tilly was kind of disappointed because she didn't want to play she didn't want to play Violet. She's like, I've played that role a hundred times. I don't want to play that. She was looking forward to playing the less feminine role of Corky. She wanted to be like, she wanted to work out and get muscles and kind of be able to act kind of butch and not wear makeup and have short hair and, you know, all this stuff that she had not ever been allowed to do in other roles. But then Jennifer Tilly, you know, they, they brought them in to read together and they're like, listen, we're going to read both of you. We're going to, and you know, it could go either way. You could play Corky. She could play Corky. You could play Violet. She could play Violet. We're going to see how this works. So Jennifer Tilly meets with Gina Gershon to do a little kind of a screen test. And as soon as they work, she immediately knew that Gershon would make a better Corky. Like she's like, this is her role. Like she is meant for this role. So Jennifer Tilly ends up accepting the role of Violet instead. She also realized that she could identify with Violet a little bit better. What's what she's able to see how the Wachowskis have written this thing. You know, yeah. Violet is not weak violet is also a strong character she's underestimated by all the men around her she has yeah. she's just playing the game because that's how she survives and, exactly but she can yeah. do her own thing so there she's more there's more depth to violet than there is a normal you know babe yeah absolutely um and, actually... and gershon sorry they, they they mentioned too you know susan bright talked about that with gershon when you know we'll, we'll talk about susan i'm sure but uh, she comes on, she was worried that Gershon had like had this idea of coming in and being this normal butch lesbian and like the stereotypical butch lesbian of like, what, what are you going to, you know, how are you going to portray this? That she had a conversation with her and she's like, I don't, I don't want you to think that like everything you see that you've seen of butch women is the same, you know, don't play it that way. And she's like, I wasn't even thinking of that. I'm doing James Dean. Yeah. Or she's uh, doing Marlon Brando, Marlon Brando yeah, or nice. young Clint Eastwood. She that's was like, cool. those are my inspirations for this role. And she yeah. was like, oh, which well, you can fuck. totally that's, see. Like, she's like, that's perfect. Yeah. Her <laughs> swagger in this, like, it's very like James Dean, Marlon Brando, like all, all over the place. Yeah, yeah. There's the stare in the, in the, when the mobsters get out and she's in the back of the truck, you know, and she tells, calls that very much her, like Clint Eastwood, <laughs> like this, the yeah. stare that she gives them and stuff. And yeah, it's, it's, it's very cool that she's, this is where her headspace is at on this. Yeah. Thanks. And yeah. kudos, kudos to Jennifer Tilly, because, I mean, it's one thing to be super passionate about a role and, you know, and really push for it and really get it, um, understand the character and really push to, you know, for them to to book you. But to see that someone else has a better handle on it and say, you know what, the project is more important. Yeah, it takes a Let's, bit. Of, it takes a yeah. little bit of humility and exactly, you know, and then so, let her pride so get in the way. Big, big kudos there because I mean their their chemistry. Oh, is dude, it's pal palpable. Some of the best screen chemistry <laughs> yeah, I've ever great. seen yeah. in a movie, honestly. So, uh, rounding out the cast, at least the main cast, uh, 
Joe Pantoliano, Joey Pants. Joey Pants. Uh, it was actually Gina Gershon who suggested them. They were friends. They were they, they were acquaintances. They uh, maybe worked together once in the past. I'm not sure, but they were they were acquaintances. And he really wanted the role, and she actually suggested him for it, and he got it. And this was actually his first lead role in a film, and he chews it up. Man. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, he really does. He's so He's great, great, but it's everything you come to love about him to think this is this is the the birth of Joey he was, Pants. He, he was birthed fully formed (laughs) (laughs) but part of the reason too is like he apparently agreed to work super cheap since they didn't have a lot of money and he even like that suits like apparently his real life suit yeah that was just a suit he owned doesn't fit him very well it's a little little baggy yeah i thought that too and i was like maybe that's a character (laughs) choice but no that's joey pants's choice he just doesn't know how to go to a tailor he's just like whatever this the suit i got wachowski's apparently a, a asked him to watch the treasure of the sierra madre from 1948 mm. uh based caesar on humphrey bogart in that movie that makes sense interesting that does and, make sense and uh he was also who brought on maloney uh christopher maloney and yeah who was also very unknown at the time yeah, yeah they had worked together they had been he's a fucking together. meme now but <laughs> <laughs> right no he's like he's but both of these guys are like all of these people are like well-known names now, but Maloney uh, and Joey Pants had worked together on, a, they were working on a show on NBC called the F- Finelli Boys. Uh, apparently Joey Pants uh, offered him and uh, man, I tell you what, Maloney, even in the interviews you'll see for this movie is just, just the coolest fucking guy. He really is. <laughs> yeah. He's so charming. <laughs> He's so charming. It's, and he just, he had this idea to make it like funny and dark I think they the the Wachowski said like one other person had read Johnny as a funny character. Everybody else yeah. tried to play it straight. It was like Nick Cassavetes, I think they said read for Johnny and Nick they Cassavetes. Laughed. Yeah, and they they said they laughed at him, and then he was like, "What the fuck? What?" <laughs> he was like, <laughs> "Are you trying to be funny? Like, what's happening? There's something about this is funny." And they, that triggered it though that. that Johnny's funny. Like there's, there's yeah. a part of him yeah. that's this kind of hilarious and Maloney came in and, and also immediately was just like read it as a funny role. It thought he'd be like, just try to make stupid lines and, and thinks he's a tough guy and a ladies man and is really kind of pathetic and yeah. that sort of thing. So, <laughs> huh. I mean, just seeing the interview with him, he, you know, they said he came in and they didn't even have anybody to read against him that day or whatever. And so his interview was a, or his audition was like kind of a disaster, but like something about him just charmed them that they were like, okay, this is, this is the guy and he gets who this character should be like, this, this works. And uh, yeah, but, but he, he got to do some of the only like improvisation on the thing because one thing you'll hear about the Wachowskis is like they're so nailed down on how this thing yeah. looks. They know everything. Mm. But Maloney would have like little moments. Jennifer Tilly says the only line she got to uh do herself was like when she let the cops in, she said, Come on in. And that was not in the script. And they they left that <laughs> in it. and she felt very good about that. <laughs> but Joey Pants. It's a bold choice. His. It's a bold choice. <laughs> he but did yeah. the handshake. Joey Pants did the handshake yeah. after they've been doing their thing on the couch. Which is hilarious. Yeah. And no, because you know where that hand's been. Do the commentary <laughs> track. He's like super proud of that. He's like, I thought of that one. I thought of that. And he gets yeah. a shoot laugh every single time. It's and, funny. Uh, <laughs> but they say all of them say like Maloney was the one like when Joey Pants hands him the towel. And stuff Maloney like wipes his face first. That was all him. Like yeah. that was, and uh, <laughs> and he says, I was disappointed like, when he got killed. 
I know, like, yeah, oh, he's come great. On. <laughs> he says well, in, he says in the interview that's on the DVD, uh, the Olive DVD. He's <laughs> he says the one thing I thought of that I didn't get in is like I still remember standing in that scene. They take the clippers and they have the guy's hands tied behind his back, and they're like, "I want to ask you ten times." And he's like, and "I thought in my head, take off his shoes and let's play twenty questions." And I didn't say yeah. that. Like, I didn't say that, and I still regret it to this day. <laughs> like, that's the thing he thinks about with this movie, apparently. So another uh, guy that's in the cast, he's, o- he's only in the movie briefly, but uh, there's a guy who plays the uh, the mob boss. Mm. The mob boss. The actor's name is Richard uh, Ser- uh, Serafian. I think is how you say his name, but he he's not really an actor. He, he does do some acting. He's actually primarily known as a director. It was kind of a thrill for the Wachowskis to get him on the movie. See, this guy, he started directing back in probably the early 60s. He did a lot of TV shows like like Lawman and I Spy and, you know, Wild Wild West, um, the uh, Gunsmoke, stuff like that. But this is Gino, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the big, big guy. The movie that he is probably, I'd say most, he, he does did do a lot of movie directing as well, but the one he's probably most known for is is Vanishing Point. Uh, Vanishing Point came out in 1971. It's this badass car chase movie. Uh, Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof is highly, highly uh, influenced by that to the point where the car that they go out to test drive is the car from Vanishing Point. And in the movie Death Proof, they... When the car is being described, Zoe Bell goes, "That's the fucking vanishing point car," you know, like, like it was. It's a very clear reference. I'm, I'm only saying that, mentioning that to say that if you haven't seen Vanishing Point, you should watch it because it's awesome. Well, <laughs> and also he's he's fantastic in the brief moment he's in there. He's like an unstoppable force in the music. Yeah. This is one of the things I thought of earlier when I was talking about Don Davis doing the music because the cue when Gino starts walking towards uh, Caesar, like that that whole scene. Uh, where Caesar pulls the gun on him, basically, and he's like, "Do you know who I am?" Yeah. <laughs> it's like walking. It's fucking crazy. Like it's yeah. it's super intense. It works really, really well. And so the music and his acting and everything is is fucking phenomenal. Uh, when he gets shot and he falls straight back, oh, such a great shot. Like yeah. that scene is so. <laughs> I don't know how they about did that scene. Is like my favorite part of this movie. It's just fantastic and it's totally like you watch that and it's like immediately when that happens you're like oh these guys do the matrix oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> like, yeah and you're like oh fuck you fucked up but also it was just like technically looking at it being like oh yeah oh these guys okay yeah this is this is making sense <laughs> and, and apparently he really wanted to do that and they were like not wanting him to fall back because it's a 65 very... year old man yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's stiff as a board just yeah yeah but they had like their production designer and stuff like go go off and, and come back from like lunch and saying like, I thought about it. We could build a rig for this guy. Like, I know how to do this. So they had like a whole thing that like lowered him just right uh, for the fall. And they, and, but it was dead set that that was how the fall would look because I even looked this up. They had been watching a apparently the Wachowskis watch boxing. And so they had seen a fight between Vincent Petway and Simon Brown. So you've just, YouTube Vincent Petway KOs Simon Brown. And in that match, Vincent Petway punches Simon Brown and he falls literally just like that straight back onto his back. 
Only his fists are still up in the air and he's still kind of moving his fists while he's laying on his well, back. Yeah. It's fucking <laughs> phenomenal. But they said that, that they had seen that fight. And they were like, oh, that's yeah, that's what we're going to do for this. That's awesome. <laughs> so while we're I guess while we're on the subject of the cast, a little segment that I completely forgot about last week. So I apologize if you worked on that, Todd. Uh, but let us know, Todd. Yes. About uh was anybody in this in a little show called Star Trek? As a matter of fact, there were some folks in what Star Trek. What if I Trek. built all that up and he's like, no, nah, nobody in this nope, one. Nope. <laughs> and moving right along. <laughs> okay, real quick. Uh, Mary Mara, uh, who is Sue, the bartender, was in the last three episodes of season three of Enterprise in 2004, mm-hmm. uh, which we have not yet gotten to on a Computer Resume podcast, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, Mr. Years Barry, from now. Yeah, yeah, a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Barry Kivel, uh, who plays Shelley, was in season five, episode 26 of Star Trek Next Generation. That's the uh, season five finale. It's Time's Arrow, part one. It's the one where uh, they find Data's head in a cave, and it's apparently dated back to like the 1800s. Yeah, I remember that one. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a fun one. And then uh, Mr. Kevin Michael Richardson who is cop number two, uh, who we see taking a number one. Um, <laughs> he was in one episode, one movie, and five Star Trek video games. He was in an episode of Lower Decks. That's season one, episode three. He was in, uh, he's credited with additional voices in Star Trek Into Darkness. And then he was in Klingon Academy, uh, Starfleet Command, volume, uh, Starfleet Command, New Worlds, DS9 The Fallen and Starfleet Command Volume 2 Empires at War. Um, wow. But the, the one of note is uh, the DS9 The Fallen, where he actually voices the character of Benjamin Sisko. So wow. there you go. Yeah, Kevin Michael Richardson uh, is a huge like voiceover guy. Oh, yeah. Tons yeah, of voice I was going to say he, he also he played is... fucking Goro in Mortal Kombat, I believe. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Oh he man, is, I didn't know that. <laughs> he's definitely Goro. He's in he's in everything. He's an invincible if you've seen it now. He's got like oh, yeah. a real just a deep just I don't know, he can do like a real monster voice basically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. His voice is very very distinct. And also uh Don Davis, the composer. Uh I know we haven't talked much about the music yet, but he actually provided some uh some music for uh The Next Generation season 6 episode 14 Face of the Enemy. And that's the one where uh Deanna Troy goes undercover with the Romulans. Fun. Yeah. That's cool. And that's everybody on Star Trek. Ah, oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you, Todd. But Gina Gershon <laughs> could have been a Vulcan. It feels like She definitely oh, could have been a yeah. Vulcan. <laughs> yeah, oh, she's got that look. Vulcan. Yeah, she's got the look. So Bound was filmed in Santa Monica, California, filmed over about a 38-day period. Um, uh, They filmed it some on location, some on sets. You know, it was a fairly small production. Uh, One of the Wachowskis, what I consider one of their most important collaborators on the film, was cinematographer Bill Pope. Oh, yeah. So originally another director of photography, and nobody ever names him in interviews, whoever this other director of photography was. Apparently a big, big name DP. was attached to this originally and he'd been hired uh, and he ended up actually leaving the film saying that he couldn't find a crew. He couldn't hire enough guys who could work cheap enough to fit within the film's budget. Like he gets there one day. He's like, I can't do this for this kind of money. I can't, the guys that I use are too expensive. So I guess he, his agent was the same agent as like Bill Pope. So he ends up quitting and Dino De Laurentiis calls up this guy's agent. He's like, Oh, do you have anybody else? 
who could work for cheap. He's like, I got a guy who can work for cheap. And that guy was Bill Pope. And Bill Pope knew a lot of other guys who could work for cheap. So Bill Pope, uh, he had actually gotten his start. And the reason he knew all these guys who could work for cheap is because he had gotten his start working on kind of lower budgeted genre movies. Gorman stuff? Uh, no, I don't think he did any Corman stuff that I that I can recall. Uh, he had worked on a lot of music videos. Before, I was going to say he did a lot of music videos. Did a lot of music uh... videos to start, but then he got his first official director of photography credit on a like Z grade horror movie from 1989 called Death Doll. However, the following year he kind of made his big splash as a cinematographer on Darkman, yeah. Sam Raimi, and who he would work with a couple of years later on Army of Darkness. And that's actually what made the Wachowskis want to hire him. Because uh, <laughs> nice. Dino De Laurentiis was like, this guy, he just shoots skeletons. <laughs> and they're like, no, nah, he can do more than that. And the Wachowskis were like, that's the fucking Army of Darkness guy. Yes, hire him. Nice. <laughs> that's Very that's cool. the thing, man. Hey, here's a lesson for everybody, it feels like, is like, do stuff because you love it. Don't try to nickel and dime anybody at first, and maybe eventually it pays off. Because, yeah, yeah, he had done Clueless, I think, right before this. Yeah, Clueless was 95. Yeah, and uh, Fire in the Sky. Disney's yeah. blank check, I just saw. Yeah, Disney's <laughs> so, blank check. I mean, but, he, he in the years since this, he has become one of the most sought-after directors of photography in Hollywood. Uh, he'll continue to work with the Wachowskis throughout the Matrix trilogy. He does all three of them. Uh, he worked on Spider-Man 2 and 3 with Sam Raimi again. Nice. Uh, he's worked with Edgar Wright, Jon Favreau, Robert Rodriguez, and most Jeez. recently, movie that's out in theaters right now, he's the director of photography on Marvel's Shang-Chi. Cool. Although, oddly enough, credited as William Pope. Oh, weird. <laughs> I, I went to see the movie and I well, saw... Well, he's all grown up now, Justin. Yeah, Come I on. mean, yeah, sure. So, <laughs> I was watching and I was like, William Pope, is that the same guy? And I looked it up and it is indeed the same guy who, who for some reason is going by William now. <laughs> but, <laughs> all right. uh, but the, yeah, so so Edgar Wright, the Wachowskis, Robert Rodriguez, like you're doing okay, Sam Raimi. And like these you're... are all very visual directors. Mm, right, too. so they're mm -hmm. counting on you now. Like he's he's he got his bag. Yeah, he worked cheap, yeah. but then he got his bag. And uh, oh, he also did Team America, apparently. So that's fun. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> he's great. I think he's a great director of photography. I've always thought he, his work was great. He's and, not going to steal from that son of a bitch, Dean Cundy, though. So don't you try it. <laughs> he's not. The, he's not the goat, but he's up there. <laughs> yeah. He's like he's up there. Uh, but he was heavily involved in the crafting of the film's visual style. So he, he basically like, you know, he went to meet the Wachowskis and he walks into their office and they've got a copy of Frank Miller's Sin City sitting out on their desk. Nice. And he looks at that. This is like his meeting to see if he can get the job. He looks at that and he's like, are you guys like using that as inspiration? And they're like, they look at him. They're like, uh, maybe. <laughs> and he's like, that would totally make sense. You should totally use Sin City as inspiration on this. And I think that's when they like just knew that they had the right guy. Yeah. And, and he was also looking forward to it because he, as a, he, he, not as seasoned as he is now, but he still had been working for years as a director of photography. And he kind of liked the idea of going on a set where he kind of had to teach the directors what to do sometimes. And he could like mentor them a little bit. Bill Pope actually directed anything? I don't, I don't know. Not to my knowledge. Huh. It just seems like his skill set's kind of leaning that way. Yeah, but, you know, not all... Uh, uh, TV and, like, music videos. Yeah, but no movies. Yeah, he did Cosmos, the 
the most recent Cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh yeah, he directed some episodes. Oh, okay, uh, a lot of the episodes. Yeah, oh, like wow. eight of them. So that's a very visually pretty cool series too. Nice. He directed Metallica's One. Damn. Yeah. Wow. How about that? That's nice. a good one. Yeah. Anyway. So as Gary mentioned earlier, very very little improvisation was allowed during filming because the Wachowskis had a very clear vision for what they wanted and they had carefully planned out every single moment in the film. It didn't leave a lot of room for going off script. Mm. And of course, this methodical planning also extended to the film sex scenes as well. So the sex scenes were choreographed by Susie Bright. Gary, Gary brought Susie Bright up earlier. Uh, Susie Bright's a feminist writer and sex educator and the Wachowskis were actually big fans of Bright and asked her to have a small cameo in the film. She uh, she plays the woman in the bar that Corky tries to talk to. And then the cop, her girlfriend, comes up, who's a cop, you know, uh, that's her. That's Susie Bright. OK. And so they, they send her the script and she loves the script. She reads it and loves it. Uh, she loved that it portrayed women that are unapologetically enjoying sex uh, and having sex. And it's, they're not just they're not just sexual like pieces in a puzzle you know what i mean like this is about mm-hmm. their their lives well because uh, a lot of times like women they they they're in film and they take pleasure in sex but it's like the man's just like ravishing them or the, right. giving them pleasure and that sort of thing but you never get to see essentially women enjoying it too like they're their own beings like they're they're the ones calling the shots like they're the ones that are you know the, the the scene for instance like with gina gershon like looking at herself in the mirror like looking at her hand and stuff like they're like relishing in the i just got laid yeah. like i i did yeah. that you know yeah. Yeah. like there's there's a i don't know like an ownership of it that they take it and it's, yeah. it's different than how women are generally portrayed in a in a film yeah. and that really appealed to her uh but she was a little disappointed that when she got to the sex scenes in the script, there's not really anything there. There's no description or direction as to how the scenes would be shot. So she actually offered to come on as a sex consultant on the film, which so, I'm throwing out there for anybody listening. I will also be your sex <laughs> consultant on the film. So not, the main- not in a movie like Bound. I always think oh, about, you wouldn't like, know anything about it. Yeah. I was going to say <laughs> the wife and I watched this and she's just like, Oh, don't get all hot over there. And it reminded me of, uh, was it, it was either Mitch Hedberg or Mitch Fattel. I can't remember which comedian had like a little bit about watching porn. And they were like, I only watch porn with dudes though, because like, cause you like to imagine you're in the porno and you're like, really just giving it to somebody. And he's like, so you want to part of filmmaking is about like putting yourself in that person's situation and he's like, at any time I watch lesbian porno and I put myself in that situation, I feel like I would be asked to leave immediately. <laughs> <laughs> this is Mitch Fatel, by the way. <laughs> so in the, uh, in the main sex scene in the film, set in Corky's apartment, uh, that was filmed in one long continuous shot because the Wachowskis felt like this, this one take would be more realistic than if they'd shot it from a bunch of different angles and edited them together. Like every other sex scene you see in movies, basically Mm. Uh, they're like, this is going to seem much more natural if we shoot it to where there are no cuts. And most of the time, and it's a, it's an incredible shot. Uh, And most of the time a scene like this is on a closed set with as few people as possible on set. Usually the director 
and a camera operator and, and very little else, maybe a grip or two, you know, if needed. But in this case, they, they, uh, the Wachowskis on the commentary said there's probably like 25 people on set because the way that they filmed the set, the shot required a lot of moving parts. And I mean that literally, like literally they were not able to move the camera around the bed and, and be, they weren't able to fit it around the bed. So they actually had to have grips moving the walls as the camera panned around grips would move the walls out of the way, move them back. And so they actually had to have a bunch of people on set during the scene. And Gina Gershon and, and, and Jennifer Tilly were kind of nervous about it at first. They, uh, reportedly took a lot of tequila shots before <laughs> before but uh uh but bill bill pope in his interviews say that they got pretty comfortable after a few takes because they had to do several takes and they started joking around during it and eventually by the end of it they're like walking over to craft services butt-ass naked you know and they, they just like <laughs> like it's no big deal at all uh, well how else do you walk over to craft services <laughs> in this COVID era i mean <laughs> Wear a mask. Wear a mask at least. (laughs) Listen, I was on a film set not long ago, and you know, for craft services there, I wasn't required to be naked in the film. I still stripped down and walked over to craft service. Is that the one where you got asked to leave for sticking your dick? I was about to say, is that why you in the rain? Tell me about. So let's talk about the release and reception of this movie, Justin. (laughs) Let's uh, let's let's go ahead and move on with that. Uh, Zach Steinberg, who's the uh, editor on the film, Mm -hmm. he. you know, he, he's one of the guys, by the way, that talks about the Wachowskis. Like he he talks about every film he's ever like messed with. He has to watch everything like twice before anything because he's watching it with like producers and then the director and then you know like going through to see what they're gonna do. Just that side note, he talks about like he was super impressed the first time working with the Wachowskis because everything was so meticulously planned yeah. and the shots were just so incredible. He was just like, I've never seen anybody make a movie like this before. Like they're just everything seems really dead on. Like there's nothing to really fuck with here. He did mention too um, in the commentary track that there's a great alternate uh, recording uh, somewhere because they had to do uh, a second recording for the sound during that scene. So, you know, because he's like, the original is fantastic. It's just them in the bed. And then you just hear things like people yelling walls. (laughs) hands toes finger her (laughs) that's what he says i mean i I watched the same interview that gary's talking about he literally says you can hear one of the wachowskis yelling finger her put your put your hand in her mouth (laughs) it's it's just uh yes sir yeah uh there's my wife's not home to hear this recording right now because she would be wondering what's going on in here (laughs) who who are you zoom chatting with (laughs) (laughs) i pay monthly for this you let me have my time (laughs) you're supposed to be at work (laughs) (laughs) this is my me time (laughs) um it's for the show i promise Oh, this is extra content that's going on the Patreon. You have no idea. This is how I pay our bills, buddy. Uh, I like the fantasy world Gary lives in where this podcast pays bills. Yeah. <laughs> there was an interview with uh, Jennifer Tilly. I don't know if you saw it in the Vulture magazine. And she talks a lot the about the most this. recent one where they had her and Gina Gershon's reunion. Was that it? It was. Or that might have been Vanity Fair. Yeah, I think this was Vulture. It was like 2014. But, you know, she, she talked a lot about this thing. So I had some uh, quotes. I was going to try to do her voice like, actors are always saying oh, sex scenes are so technical. 
<laughs> I don't like that at all. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Uh, anyway, she says, actors are always saying sex scenes are so technical. Everyone's standing around watching. It is technical, but there's something about being naked with a member of the opposite sex that you still want them to think that you're hot. There's a reason why people are always having affairs with their leading men. With Gina, it was really relaxing because you could say things to her that you wouldn't say to other people. Like, can you put your hand on my thigh so my butt doesn't look so big? Can you hold my <laughs> breast up so it looks plump and juicy? you would never <laughs> make each other look good yeah, yeah. <laughs> so between takes i would say gina there's a shoe sale at barty's if we finish early we should go over to barty's and shop for shoes <laughs> she's like so it was actually surprisingly unsexy but then when you saw it on screen i was blown away we actually have chemistry in buckets so one of the things i wanted to get to is that she does say in this too that you know there was a worry they had that they talked to the wachowskis about like what uh Dino De Laurentiis was a producer and they said they were worried that when they finished the scene that he would send it off to Italy and insert like random breasts and buttocks and just like make it more explicit. And so the Wachowskis talked to them about this and that was part of the decision that they're like, all right, well, what we're going to do is that we're going to nail this down and we're going to shoot this whole thing in one long continuous shot. So they can't cut it up. He can't cut it. And uh, without it looking really, really obvious. Yeah. Uh, so she said, so the day we were supposed to shoot the love scene, it was a closed set, but there were monitors in the hallway and everybody was clustered around the monitors watching. Uh, but, uh, but she said what they're yelling out is like they had the cameras going around. And so like they would yell those things like hand or toes or whatever it was to tell them like what's being focused in on in the scene so that they could go ahead and like really emphasize that in their acting and that they had done like eight takes of this thing but uh it was it was basically just so they could nail this down in one shot so he couldn't cut in with it basically yeah and it makes for a i mean a pretty incredible looking shot yeah Uh, it really is visually this film like I had not seen this movie in years before watching it this time. And, and I was shocked by how visually stunning the film is overall and how knowing that they would go on to do something as visually incredible and groundbreaking as the matrix, like seeing some of their shots, like that opening shot in the closet, like looking down at Gina Gershon, like what an incredible shot zooming out from the, um, like the, the, the gun, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, where it zooms out of, the gun like what an incredible shot for a first-time filmmaker to do that you can tell they're very like influenced by graphic novels and things like that because that's a very comic booky kind of shot yeah what one of the things i mean it just even comic booky but it looks great oh yeah (laughs) yeah well patty podesta was an artist that worked on uh you know she she was i mean she was she's now like a pretty popular artist but she worked in museums and in books and so she did the opening credits but she did the opening credits on this and she talks about like a lot of her you know when she they asked her to do the opening title sequence i think she had done some other stuff but they brought her in and and thought that she would be really good for this so she worked really hard on it i did not realize this this just impressed me so much that she did i mean those are actual like literal foam letters yeah she created for like bound you know this is if they did this now it would be cgi but that's all practical yeah it's all practical it's foam letters she created and uh she knew that he they were really interested in graphic novels so she knew like 
all right, how can I set this up that it goes like really high contrast into like a more fleshy look? And uh, she said she wasn't really sure, but they were just, they weren't sure. So they left it up to her. So she created these letters and like set up the lighting and the cameras. And she said they came in one day when they were trying to get like the angles they wanted to shoot. And she said, they're so technically savvy, like immediately, like right when they walked in, uh, she said they saw the letter sitting there in the light set up and they were like, oh, fuck, yeah, I know what to do with this. And then they just immediately both started working and like started moving the lights around and like the cameras and like just doing the whole scene. But they had to use like her base for like she had created there, but they knew exactly like immediately what they wanted to do with it. But but she went off that fact, too, that she was like, I, I, I knew from talking to them and looking up who they were like they're into graphic novels and that sort of thing and uh but if you go back and watch those credits now it it, it takes a different effect like knowing like no that's that's practical that's physically there that's yeah. not just some cgi thing moving around it's pretty cool it's a pretty audacious way to start the movie too it sets you up for what is going to be a very visual journey one of the other things i was going to bring up about the sex scene too that was that drove me crazy like hearing about is just that uh you know, we, we mentioned it up top, just the, the, you know, there's a double standard in Hollywood at the time with what was going on. They struggled with an NC-17 rating on this movie just because of the sex scene. And in that same Vulture interview with Jennifer Tilly, she talks about that. Uh, uh, I'll just read the quote. She says, the Wachowskis took the film to the ratings board and they instantly got an NC-17. It was unbelievable. The Wachowski said, it's homophobic. It's homophobia, clear and simple. Because all you saw was one of my breasts. You saw two of Gina's breasts. You didn't see any genitalia. You saw my hand. The MPAA said, because Jennifer and Gina are such good actors, it looks like she's really giving her a hand job. And the Wachowski said, let me get this straight. If they weren't such good actors, you would let it go, though? And the MPAA sort of said, well, yeah, it was really sad. <laughs> we ended up having to sub in a different take. I think it was the it was take seven where the camera accidentally dipped and missed my hand. The take that we ended up using, it was before we got all the kinks out. They had the door to the bathroom open wider. So it was brighter in the room where they were the take we wanted to use had a lot of shadows. The makeup person had sprayed us with sweat. So it looked like we were really going at it. It was sort of more graphic and Gina didn't like this other take. She said, I was overacting with my feet. Then at the end, all of a sudden, my breasts wanted to get on frame and it fell into camera like, boom, my breasts are really big. So it was a little more pornographic than Gina's fashion plate breasts. In the perfect take, I was raised up on one hand, kind of watching her, and I'm not sure you could see either of my bosoms, maybe a little side boob. And in this take, I was down on her, so my breasts were touching her breasts. I felt like it was 10 times more graphic than the take we wanted to use, but apparently... Because you missed the hand, it was like you missed the hand, but you gave the breast, but the hand's not there. It's all right. It's so weird. It is such a double standard. Oh, God, that's weird. No. Well, in order to receive the R rating, you know, they, they did make a lot, they, they made a handful of changes, but the majority of them were from that from that sex scene uh, where they, they had to take the images of what Lana Wachowski calls hand sex to be edited out. I like that. That's a fun term. Uh, yeah, <laughs> those uh, those cuts have been restored, though, in pretty much every version of the film that's available on home video. So if you watch this along with us, you have most likely seen or had access to the unrated cut. Hand sex is all I know anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> ah, got him. Got there it him. is. 
Now, I will uh, say this. I will say this. I, I wanted to bring this up, too, because I did not know this, but Susan Bright talks a lot about this in the commentary track for this film, that one thing the Wachowskis are very familiar with is the reason she was so interested is they, they understood stuff that most people wouldn't. Uh, so for anybody who's thinking about the Wachowskis, like as they transition over time, that they, this wasn't always on their mind. I mean, there's, there's evidence that clearly understood this thing in a different, di- different, at a different level than like a traditionally, like just a male director would understand something. The Wachowskis, one of the things Susan Bright points out is like the initial meeting between Violet and Corky, like Violet staring down at her hand and she's got like the goddess tattoo on her thumb. And, but she's like, there's a close up of, of Corky's hand and it like moves along her hand. And Susan Bright says that that's like legitimately in the lesbian community, the hand is the sex organ. So it's, that's a part of it. There's even the discussion of uh, daddy's hands or something. And that's a, that's a whole other reference that I'm not, I haven't even dived into yet, but uh, uh, anyway, uh, she, she mentions all this in the commentary track. It's just like when they saw that and the Wachowskis were like, you know, it's funny in San Francisco, that was the first time that that got like a huge pop that like people, it it was like, it got the reaction we were hoping for. And, Mm. uh, she was like, that's the point where people realize this is not, this is not Hollywood lesbians. This is something else. This is like, you actually understand who we are. And, uh, and so there's those scenes. There's even the scene with like, uh, you know, Gina Gershon fixing the pipe or whatever, or getting the earring out and stuff like that, which is very like her hands all wet. Very wet. It's a very, uh, yeah. (laughs) Susie Bright talks about how, how, uh, how much liquid and wetness there is in this. So she calls it a very wet film yeah. in that commentary. <laughs> but, but she talks about that, that they're like, that, that they, they got it. Like there was, there was, there was on a deeper level for, mm-hmm. for the lesbian community that, that it wasn't just these two women, even the interactions between Violet and Corky, where it's almost as though Violet has to prove to Corky that she's not just some straight girl trying to lead her on. And, and there's like a testing, like to like, see her, like you serious. Are you really a lesbian? Like are you, well, and, you mentioned that, that, um, that screening in San Francisco, is that the, uh, it was like an LGBT, or I think it was called the late, the gay and lesbian film festival or something like that. The and commentary the Wachows- track. Um, sorry to cut you off. I was just going to say, yes, it is that. And the commentary track is the, when you listen to that, it's the first time they've seen the film. Since, since then, then. Yeah, that, yeah that's what i was going to say because wow and the reason is because they got such a great reaction at that screening that they didn't want to revisit the movie and ruin that moment for themselves uh because they're like nothing's going to top this no other no other premiere no other festival no other reaction is going to top how how well it was received at that festival so susan bribe was just there because she was like they she wanted to be there because she was like, they've got everything else. So when she wanted to be like the sexual consultant, she was like, they didn't write anything here. So they, maybe this is the part they don't quite have a grasp on yet, you know, that I can help with. And so, but she, you know, she, she's very adamant about just how deeply they understood this thing. And I, I just right. thought that was kind of fascinating. Just that because of this stuff that she's explaining on the commentary that I had no idea were things. And, uh, yeah somehow they knew about they knew yeah so after those cuts were made to get the r rating 
the the movie came out released in the in the u.s on October 4th, 1996, it would go on to gross $3.8 million in the U.S., an additional $3.2 million internationally. Not setting the world on fire, but again, this is only a $6 million movie, and this is at the height of the home video market. So it ended up doing fine once it hit on home video. It wasn't like a, a major hit, but it did you know, kind of prove that they knew what they were doing. So although the film had its detractors, they were kind of few and far between, and the film received overwhelmingly positive reviews, with many critics specifically highlighting the sure-handed direction of the Wachowskis. But Gary, I am willing to bet that if you were to dig, if you were to dig into the, the deepest, darkest recesses of the internet, you might find some folks that don't that, that aren't fans of this movie. Yeah, I would say so. And even at the time, uh, there was a lot of confusion about these uh, two two Wachowskis coming out here and you know making a film about lesbians. And there was confusion. And but yeah, even over time, as the films become more understood, and 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 this, I don't know a better way to say it, but this lifestyles become more understood. That whole thing that um, there are still people out there that watch this movie and they need a nap. <laughs> Um, one of the reviews that is worth reading just on its own, just by the way, it comes from back then. They they talk about there's a there's an excellent feature on the the DVD from Olive that uh, it's called the difference between you and me, and it's two uh, fem, feminist film critics that are talking about the the movie, and um, they um, one's B Ruby Rich, I believe, who uh, who is a uh, she is sort of a she specializes in queer cinema. Right, uh, right. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Uh, but she she coined the term new queer cinema and sort of defined it. So a pretty big uh, expert on the on not only this film, but queer cinema as a whole. That's cool. Yeah. And and, and also and what I was going to say about it, I mean, in general, that feature is probably my favorite on the on the DVD, just because it's, it's very educational, just talking about uh noir films in general the education mm -hmm. behind that and then what neo-noir consists of like how that came about and that sort of thing but one of the things that's mentioned in there is a piece by a, a woman named kelly kessler and uh they talked about even you know lesbian critics at the time just didn't know how to take this movie like they couldn't wrap their brains around it and uh she said the, the Kelly Kessler piece is worth reading on your own, but yeah, she, she immediately describes like, you can tell like from the get, cause she's just like these two hetero married men from the Midwest, like wrote a movie that like, you can tell she's already just like thrown off. Like she just, she can't understand how these two normal white guys wrote a lesbian movie and it, you know she's like trying to reconcile that in her brain it feels like in the review is pretty interesting <laughs> but uh anyway so uh, you know all that aside you think nowadays like more people would be on board with this movie and kind of realize what it is and be okay with it but nah, nay uh romstein here uh says it's uh, yeah romstein is the name of the reviewer <laughs> it says uh the title of the review is uh porno flick disguising itself as a real flick Yep, softcore lesbian porno reel made to make nerds like the Wachowskis drool for a bit to get some suspense. 
The acting is, to say the least, poor. The plot is fairly stupid and simple-minded. I'm not impressed by the lesbian relationship between the cheesy and clearly spoiled brat of a woman, Tilly, and the hefty, swaggering, woe man living next door. It sure looks like the dust-till-dawn syndrome. What? After writing half a script, the writers go ape and write something completely different. Ah. Uh, Dust so. Till Dawn started out as a standard formula written Tarantino thing and ended up a stupid but entertaining horror splatter flick. This one started as a lowbrow, softcore porn thing and ended up a mafia thriller. It doesn't work. One out of ten. And I might add, I find Gershon's acting just above ridiculous. Oh, fuck that. She's, <laughs> she's amazing. <laughs> she's great. Also, I like the idea that this this person thinks that Quentin Tarantino sat down to write from Gusto Dawn and uh, like gets enough. like 40 pages into it. It's like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's throw some vampires in here. Like that wasn't the plan from the beginning. <laughs> Frank says, uh, I began watching this movie with somewhat high hopes because of my friend's strong recommendation. However, I just could not finish this film. I felt it was trying to push the envelope and that does not necessarily make for good filmmaking. First, you were introduced to the heroes of this movie. You turned out to be a lesbian pair. Unusual and unexpected. Second, comes the scenes of torture, where the tormentors creatively use normally innocuous household items. The visual cruelty was just too much, and we had to turn off the movie. This was unfortunate because we heard the storyline itself is actually quite good. If you're uncomfortable with scenes of violent torture and or lesbianism, this is not the movie for you. Bunch of prudes. Yeah. I want to set here. Frank down and show him hostile. That's yeah. all right. <laughs> it was like really violent torture. Hey, uh, Frank, have you seen the human centipede? <laughs> Sir. You got to check this out. You're going to love it. Storyline's great. Uh, it's, a, it's a very Christian film. Sexy. Uh, <laughs> wait. Do you like eating ass, Frank? <laughs> um, Jason says, uh, I just like this one just because of this line. Jason said, one out of five, if I were Cisco or Ebert, I would give this movie the finger. And I feel like there are so many different ways to take that. <laughs> and I don't know Nicely done. Nicely I don't, done. I don't think he was being that clever. <laughs> uh, I was just like, wow, Jason, this review, how deep is it really? Well, no, yeah, anyway. Uh, well, right. Careful, hey. careful. Hey. Let's go to Misha's review. Not for me is the title. I absolutely adore Jennifer Tilly in the Chucky movies. She's the woman girls should idolize, not the Nicole Richies of the world. She has curves and is proud to flop them. What the fuck is this review? <laughs> <laughs> Any review with a Nicole Ritchie reference is gold. <laughs> right. This year of our Lord 2021. So why was I so disappointed in this film? For starters, I hate movies about the mafia or anything of the sort. So only really watched this film for Jennifer Tilly. Plus, it was a birthday present. It wasn't good, in my opinion. I didn't find the scenes between Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon in the slightest bit sexy, and I didn't get turned on. The two actresses certainly had chemistry. I just didn't find the scenes where they progressed to, to, to the bedroom very sexy. It just didn't do anything for me, which I was quite surprised at. So essentially, basically, Misha said... He didn't get a, he didn't get a boner, so... Couldn't jerk to this one. <laughs> I didn't watch much more of the film as the start of the film seemed to be mostly Jennifer and Gina getting it on. And then it descended into mafia rubbish. I watched the first 40 minutes, gave up, and well, 
quite happily never watched it again. Actually, I think that Misha perhaps did get off to this movie and that was like 40 minutes in maybe at the sex scene and it was just <laughs> and like, they were well, done. Now I'm going to bed <laughs> the end <laughs> i got what i needed out of this movie <laughs> this could end here cod 1994 is the name of this uh reviewer the review is from september 15th 2021 so this is great i did not like this film terrible representation of lesbos and i should know Someone pointed out the seductress's voice sounded like Stuart Little's mom. And we looked it up. It was. Then I just couldn't take her seriously for the rest of the film. Not that I ever could take her seriously. Long-winded and boring. Did too much of an opening of the goddamn suitcase. The cinematography is all right sometimes. Dialogue's incredibly cliche. I could guess what they were going to say a lot. This film is not for me, and I don't ever want to see it again. Jennifer Chili's and Stuart Little. I didn't know that either, but apparently it's uh, Stuart's mom. Oh, the mouse mom, not oh, because Gina Davis plays the mom, mom, the adopted uh, mom. You ever uh, think about that movie? I was talking to, oddly <laughs> enough, I was talking to my wife about Stuart Little the other day uh, because M Night Shyamalan hey. wrote it. I was that's a bit of trivia. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> but can you imagine if you're a child in a orphanage? And every time someone comes, you're like, hopefully this is my new mom and dad. Maybe this is it. Maybe I'll finally have a family. And these motherfuckers come in and adopt a fucking mouse. (laughs) 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 Instead of me. Yeah, but I mean, you know. He does drive a car. He does drive a car. There's that. (laughs) And the mouse probably has that scenario like a thousand times a day. So, (laughs) you know, it's like, I'm not going to get picked. I'm not a human kid. So. It makes sense. Uh, Heretic says the Matrix must be a miracle because everything else the Wachowskis have ever done is plastic and empty. The slick stylization of Baldwin is as generic as Jennifer auditioning for Morpheus, but without Lawrence Fishburne's charisma, Tilly's performance. Features the least threatening villains imaginable. I wish I cared about the twist, but it's hard to have fun when the direction is so rote, soulless, secondhand, and second rate. What movie did these people watch? Jeez. I don't know. I got two In more. what world? Like these people are like, oh, there's no chemistry between these two leads. This is a visually boring movie. Like, w- w- I watched a completely different movie than any of these people watched. Yeah, I because I, really I feel the exact that. opposite about every th- single thing that they're saying, including Luke here, who says immensely disappointed to report that this just ain't too great. Very much a wannabe Coen Brothers flick, but with lesbians. The lesbian stuff is really cool. There's some sensuous stuff, and a lesbian sex counselor helped coach those scenes, so that's neat. The biggest issue here, though, for me is Jennifer Tilly. If this is how she usually acts, no wonder I just know her as the lady forever condemned to shitty movies. The breathless, high-pitched Marilyn Monroe and Quaalude shit she pulls here is infuriating. My wife, always up for gay shit, seriously, asked me to not watch this near her, lest she be forced to hear Tilly speak more. The story itself is pretty okay, if not someone convoluted around the halfway bit, but I do appreciate the ending. Cool for its place in LGBTQ films as a baby step before a colossal stride into The Matrix and Speedrunner. 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 Just say Speedrunner. (laughs) I don't even know the name of the movie. Oh, that's, uh, it was, 
it was the prequel to Speed Racer. Yeah. He was he, got, the car, he, he, got he was trying to he was trying to win ca- these automobile races without a car. Uh, and really I couldn't I couldn't yeah. fairly end this without a female review and actually I have two short female reviews. Uh, Jenny says, "Are you fucking serious? The only good things about this with the sex scene, Gina Gershad, that's my queer speaking, and the decent cinematography. Everyone who gave this a high rating is too horny to be objective." And <laughs> Tiff says, I honestly didn't know what the fuck was happening because I wasn't paying attention throughout most of this, but I also thought that Corky's name was Quirky, and at first I couldn't unhear it for the rest of the movie, so that was pretty entertaining. Sounds like your problem there, Tiff. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I thought her name was Corgi, like like the dog. dog? Yeah. (laughs) Also weird. So It wasn't until the credits rolled, I was like, (laughs) oh, <laughs> no, it's Corky, it's like Corky. like Corky Romano, the classic character played by Chris Catan. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so a, a couple couple reviews back, Gary. One of them compared this to the Cohen brothers, and that was actually something that when the movie came out, uh, a lot of critics compared the Wachowskis to the Cohen brothers, specifically with similarities drawn between Bound and the Cohen brothers' debut film Blood Simple, which had come out gosh, almost a decade before this, maybe over a decade before this, actually. Uh, and, and I mean, Bound has kind of a classic noir setup. You've got a love triangle and a pile of cash. That's classic film noir. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's the same setup as Blood Simple. But I think that the Wachowskis bring something pretty unique to it. Uh, and, and I think we've discussed this a little bit already, but I, I think that if you watch this movie now in retrospect familiar with the work that they would do after bound you can kind of see the film as a major key to where their filmography would go after this Mm. so when the matrix came out there was a lot of talk about its visual similarities to graphic novels comic books and stuff uh but that's a stylistic choice that began here that didn't start with the matrix they didn't all of a sudden become super visual filmmakers on the matrix that starts here yeah. Um, even the way that the violence is played in this film, like you talked about before, Gary, when the when the mob boss falls down, like you can tell that's these are the guys who are going to make, make make the matrix, or the shot where the bullet hits the picture frame behind Joey Pants, mm-hmm. and it's like super slow motion. Like that is a precursor to what they would eventually do with like bullet time in yeah. the matrix. I mean, you can see all of the seeds of that stuff here. There's oh, some absolutely. cool stuff with, I mean, when Caesar dies, like, I yeah. mean, that, that whole scene. Oh, visually with the, with the white paint everywhere and the blood flowing through the paint. Like, yes. In yeah. the interview with Maloney, he's like talking about just how fascinated he was in that scene. He said it took five hours to rig that scene. He said he knew that because he stood there the whole time. Yeah. It was just like, what the fuck are these guys doing? Yeah. And he says he like watches that scene now. And it's just like, that's fucking amazing like yeah. yeah but yeah that 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 scene just blew my mind and thematically i think it tracks as well like you've got bound is about two women who are fighting against oppression and the fight against oppression is something we're going to see pop up again and again in the wachowski's films especially in the matrix v for vendetta and jupiter ascending those are that's a, a major theme of all of those movies and another one Another major theme of this film, and again, I think a major theme in in pretty much their whole filmography, is kind of the the idea of the the feeling of being trapped or boxed in or not to put too too big of uh, an exclamation mark on it, but bound 
by the hand that life has dealt you. And I mean, the film literally begins with an image of Corky tied up and trapped in a closet. And that, if that's not a visual metaphor, I don't know what is, Mm. Uh, you know, at, at the time of the film's release, Lana Wachowski said in an interview, there's a long quote, but I'm going to read it here. She said, quote, we think that not only gay people or queer people live in closets, everybody does. We all tend to put ourselves into these boxes, these traps. And so what we tried to do is we tried to define as many of the characters through the sort of trap that they were making out of their lives. Getting out of the closet was meant to take on a bigger meaning than just the typical gay. Meaning. So they're, what, they're, what they're doing is they're, they're viewing anyone who is trapped in a life that they don't feel they belong in and using the metaphor of essentially the closet coming out of the closet, being trapped in the closet as a way to tell that story. And I, th- I mean, that's sort of brilliant because yes, it speaks to the LGBT community, but it also speaks to anyone else who's ever felt like they, they're not who they're supposed to be. It's universal. Absolutely. Those themes are universal. Yeah. And so when you look back at the film now, it's, it's kind of hard not to read it as a sort of almost confession that these these sisters these siblings who came out as transgender women in 2012 and 2016 felt trapped by their identity so when when she went public with her transition in a a profile written in the new yorker lana tells the story of uh when they when she was a kid trying to walk in the girls line while attending catholic school as a child and being scolded by one of the nuns so that's not something that they just this is this uh, speaks to something Gary said earlier. This is not something they just decided on later in life. This is a feeling that they had felt since for their entire lives that they were trapped. This feeling of being trapped in in a body that's not yours or being someone you're not supposed to be. Mm. And of course, that includes when they were making bound and when at the you know while they're making bound, they to everyone around them were identifying as straight men. Mm. And what they're doing, this is a, I mean, this is a story essentially about choosing your own destiny, creating your own story. That's what Violet and Corky are doing. They're deciding to get out of this oppressive state that they're in. Corky is under the thumb of Caesar, or, or excuse me, Violet is under the thumb of Caesar. Corky, you know, she's she's literally been in prison for five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're wanting to reclaim their lives, reclaim their identity, uh, reclaiming like the their life that was stolen from the Caesars of the world. And I think we're going to see the themes of identity. When we were talking about this series, Todd, uh, earlier this week or last week, uh, a little bit, you know, gearing up for this, one of the things we talked about that I mentioned that I think the, the theme of identity is something that's going to come up time and again with yeah. Wachowskis. I mean, it's it's most often discussed and with good reason when you're talking, when people are talking about the matrix. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of these films, if not all of these films, revolve around characters finding out or or revealing that they're more than what they seem that they're Mm. more than just the face that the world sees you know yeah Yeah, absolutely and i think i mean don't get me wrong clearly uh i mean obviously there are some folks that disagree as we've uh just heard but um these some of them sounded like idiots too Uh, right right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, so many, uh, so many of the Wachowski's films are just enjoyable on uh, on a surface level. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and I think, and and that's great. They're fantastic filmmakers. But just start peeling the layers; it just gets better and better. Yeah. You can absolutely enjoy Bound on a surface level as a thriller. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's the as, that's the weird thing 
Justin, just to jump in there, is that that the because it should be just a good mob movie, mm-hmm. just like just in general, and and somehow lesbianism keeps popping up in there, which you know I get it. I mean that's part of the purpose, but it's part of the purpose because it's like so outlandish. But anyway, I guess that also tells you that we're at a weird we're still in a weird spot in our society, but like every one of those reviews I read, it feels like at some point, every single one mentioned it. Yeah. Every, everybody mentions it. And it's like, okay. But if, if it were like fucking Tom Cruise was one of the guys, like, right. Would you still feel the same way? And I I don't know that a lot of people would. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they think that because they're watching a lesbian movie, that part of the goal of the filmmakers is titillation. And it's not, they're not making a porn it. That's, that's not exactly the, that's it. not the, that's not what they're trying to make. That's not the point. That's the point of the sex scenes. The point of the sex scenes is to show the connection between those two women, not to give you a boner. One of the, <laughs> one of the reviews, did. like literally he's talking about it's like too pornographic <laughs> or it's a porto, uh, you know, or whatever. And it's like, really, that's what you got out of this? Because there's like one scene with, with titties. Yeah. One, <laughs> like literally <laughs> like, one. And it's, it's brief. It's, there's not enough to like be a porto. In no. this movie, it's really That'd be a not. very poorly made pornography film, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's even even I even got that way with the violets. It's like okay, yeah, at the end there's some like shooting, but no more than you normally see. I was like the guy complaining about torture. I'm like, well, yeah, they showed the one dude's finger get chopped off. I mean, they yeah. showed it fall on the floor. If it's, this is two years after Pulp Fiction. Like this is not new. I mean, and this movie got lumped in with stuff like Pulp Fiction a lot. I mean, it fits in with that era of independent filmmaking in the 90s. And if you watch sure. that movie, I mean, or I mean, if you watch this movie and you see that, I mean, it's literally to set up that like, this can happen, yeah. but they never These go guys that don't far again. Yeah, like, exactly. It never, it never does that again. Well, they, they actually wanted, I think it was Dino De Laurentiis wanted the finger falling on the floor taken out, but they were adamant about keeping it in because they're like, you have to see that these guys mean business. Right, mm-hmm. so it makes you scared when they're threatening it later. Yeah, but I mean, they they don't do it again. I mean, it's just like blood spatter is the worst you get later. Yeah, yeah. I think I mean that's sort of what's brilliant about this movie. You can watch it on so many levels. It it is just as a thriller. It is incredibly entertaining. Like it really is. Yeah, Uh, and I love the structure of it because it starts off. You think that Corky is going to be your hero, essentially. And once shit goes sideways with Caesar, it sort of becomes Violet's movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Corky is barely seen for a good chunk of the latter half of this movie because Violet is just stuck trying to deal with, with Caesar and how he has handled the situation, which does not go according to their plan. Uh, so it's a really interesting uh, structure as well, I think. But it's just like, I had not, like I said, I had not seen this movie. I bet I haven't seen this movie in 20 years. And I did not remember much of the plot, uh, like the twists and turns. I certainly didn't remember. And mm. I was very engrossed by this. Uh, and not only that, but admiring just the visual filmmaking of the Wachowskis. Well, and Jennifer Tilly, Jennifer Tilly does such a good job of selling um, the phone call to, was it uh, Manny or... Um, or yeah, Manny. Is, that is it name? Manny? Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, they, but she yeah, sells that phone call because you see her hang up and and her face completely change. Yeah, it's just like okay, and yeah, so yeah, it definitely shifts from you know 
corky to to violet for sure watch her talk to any man like her voice yeah. is like this sweet little cute jennifer she changes voice it. yeah when she's talking yeah. to men especially like the cops too mm-hmm. and like that sort of thing she like l- latches the chain apparently that was her idea to like put the chain on to creep open the door to so she's afraid and like oh these two men are outside my door and that sort of thing but when it's like violent and quirky talking it's not like that like she's very much just normal jennifer tilly and uh you can hear in the commentary track just like talk like normal jennifer tilly around interviews like she's not that person the person that you normally see i mean even the people that are referencing chucky it's the same role she plays there now like she's learned like that's that's her money maker. Yeah, that's yeah. Thing. yeah. <laughs> it's like I could be sweet and cute, and I have like a little innocent, sweet voice, but I could be like a bastard at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I also don't understand the, any of those reviews that you read, Gary, that talk about. I felt like multiple ones said this that like there's no chemistry between Gershon and, and Tilly because oh, that's so stupid. That, that is, is insane because that first scene, not not well, even in the elevator, like the way that 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 Corky kind of does a double take when she sees violet you know mm-hmm. the way that the way that her like literally if you watch gina gershon's face the way her facial expression changes is very subtle but it's very like she's intrigued already but that first yep. scene where she gets called over when violet's at home by herself where she's essentially trying to seduce corky that is like one of the like best seduction scenes that have ever been put into a movie i mean the, you can feel the heat coming off of the screen when yeah. you watch that well you're saying that like gina gershon is like i i feel like should be like world renowned as a respected actress and whatever like i, I love gina gershon but this movie i went in expecting gina gershon like i knew she would show up but i didn't i don't think i knew what to expect from jennifer tilly necessarily except cute jennifer tilly but right. Jennifer Tilly carries a whole lot of this movie. She Absolutely. is fucking fantastic. She is outstanding. She really In is. that elevator scene, there's like the triangle scene she sets up like between, you know, uh, Caesar's there and then Corky's over in the other corner. And there's that. But that shows up later. Like, yeah, they shows, do that often. Yeah. They, the literal they, love triangle. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. do it later with, uh, with Mickey and mm-hmm. Caesar and her like standing like there's just like the weirdness and she's like dominating these situations and she and she does she plays she's playing the game like what i talked about earlier like she she knows like what her role is and so she just plays it until she finds a way out and and it's even another layer of it if you want to peel back the onion this far is that like you're when you're in the elevator scene you see her see like corky halfway through the movie you like start to even wonder like is violet on the up and up you know like is she just using this as a way out and like seeing what she can get away with yeah so it's even like a bigger deal when it pays off at the end that like no she's also serious about this these are two women that are like all for each other now and they ride off into the sunset yes you know so there's a lot in this movie i i don't i don't get the people that hate it like i mean i think if you enjoyed it as a regular thriller it works and and i i guess i just want to blow up the Wachowskis as much as I can right now. So before we get to speed racer, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but I, I think this movie's fantastic. I think everything about it works brilliantly. I, I I agree. I mean, I, I was blown away by how sure, sure handed they were right out of the gate, you know, right out of the gate. It's, it's 
it's impressive on multiple levels. Yeah. Yeah. It uh, really is. Maloney, like I think he said, uh, clear, calm, and had command, and they were technically proficient, is how he described his time. Yeah. Uh, and everyone yeah. talks about how they like they they operate not as a as a single unit, like it almost like they have a telepathic like bond, like they can. It's like they're always on the same page when they're directing together. Yeah, he 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 actually maybe we watched the same thing, but Maloney was saying that like he he would call mm-hmm. them telekinetic, but it was kind of weird because it was like they would go in and they all had they each had their own styles and angles that they wanted from something but they just knew what the other one was thinking and so like they had their own taste for how something would happen but um but he said you could definitely see like even him he said he walked into it knowing he's like right off the bat he said you could see they were melding like hong kong cinema with graphic novels there's a lot of hong kong cinema in that we haven't really really talked about that but that's a definite influence on some of the the visual scenes like the way that the camera like somebody will be holding out a gun and the camera the camera will kind of swoosh around them yeah that's very that's very john woo like you know uh it's there's a ton of influence here and we're going to see that throughout this series, obviously. Well, even uh, here gonna... too, uh, the, the editor, sorry, the editor was talking about that. They shot everything in one, one way was like real time. And one way was in slow-mo so they could swap in and out on yeah. everything. Yeah. Nice. Really cool. So before we um, wrap up, do you guys have any further viewing? Uh, they, if you were going to do a, a, a double feature with bound and something else, what would you, what would you throw in there? Well, uh, if I'm going first, uh, I would say, listen, the, the I, I kind of cheated. And I, I, I just Googled to see what Google would say, like, because mm-hmm. I knew this question was coming up. And Red Rock West is recommended a good bit. And I see yeah. that because I remember in that educational extra feature that I mentioned, uh, Red Rock West is considered like one of the first neo-noir films. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So that. Yeah, that came out like uh, two or three years before this one. Yeah, early nineties. So that makes sense. I will be honest with you and tell you the two movies I thought of when I watched this movie, besides obviously the fucking matrix or something um, right. is uh, I think true romance uh, feels yeah. sort of like it. And this may sound crazy, but also drive, especially at the more you described like the identity or the like escaping, like yeah. who you are. For That's some good. reason, I, I I even felt reinforced with Drive. Like yeah. I was like, this has its own style, but it's very much about this person like escaping their, like what they're confined to. Yeah. In this situation. No, you're absolutely right. I hadn't. I would not have thought of that, but thematically, you're absolutely right. Uh, I'm gonna go. I, you know, I mentioned you know talking about enjoying things on kind of the surface level, which is kind of my role here on the show. Um. And, uh, you know, really enjoying once we get in here, peeling those layers back and seeing, you know, the depth of, you know, everything that we talk about. But in terms of pairing this with uh, a heist movie that maybe doesn't go as according to plan. um, I like National Treasure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, uh, every Uh. every movie is made better by Nick Cage, of course. This but, movie um, would be great with Nick Cage. Yeah, <laughs> sure would be. In both I roles. Mean, I love Joey Pants, both but if he roles. was Caesar. No, no, no. Cor- Corky <laughs> yeah. and Violet. 
<laughs> or or uh, if let's be honest if corky and violet were played by john travolta and nick cage oh yeah oh man oh wow. let's remake bound <laughs> still with joey pants but still with joey pants as still with joey pants 70 year old real gay movie oh my god but i love i love bandits you know um bruce willis bruce willis, willis? Uh, bill, yeah bruce willis billy billy bob thornton it's yeah it's a heist movie i, I, I think, pretty fun. I think I this, I this would be a, a fun a fun pairing yeah yeah well, I, I lean towards a couple different ones. What I, I think of this as part of this sort of interesting neo-noir trend mm. that we had in the 90s that something like Red Rock West was part of or the Grifters or even Basic Instinct. You know, like we talked, you know, that that's very yeah. much a, a neo-noir. Oh, Basic Instinct's a good one, um, dude. But I also, as you know, we mentioned it before because this got compared to it a lot, but Blood Simple, the Coen Brothers Blood Simple. I mean, it is a very similar plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little bit darker than this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, this movie's a little more fun because this movie, one thing we haven't talked about is this movie does have fun. Uh, like, especially with some of the musical choices, like throwing that Ray Charles song in there and things like that. <laughs> like they're having fun a little oh, bit. Oh, wait a minute. What about the fact that we, we didn't even say this, but like the uh, sex the sex, the straight sex is depicted off screen. Always of off screen. Yeah. Always <laughs> off screen. It's only the lesbian sex depicted on screen. Yeah. And then the first time that Corky hears Violet and uh, Caesar having sex, the very next scene is her like threading that drain in her tub with yeah. that pipe. <laughs> and there's even a close up on a side that says, do not force the snake. <laughs> yeah i mean they got campy they were they were yeah. playing a little bit they this. really did so that that's where i think it differs a little bit from blood simple i think blood simple is a great movie it is uh it is not my favorite coen brothers movie uh by a long stretch uh and i actually like this movie a little bit better than blood simple but i think they'd make a great double feature or if you want to go in a different direction another one that i thought of uh and i, I like story-wise it's a little bit different it's very different. It's about two two women who uh, who murder somebody, <laughs> but it's another lesbian thriller. But uh, Heavenly Creatures, which is directed by Peter Jackson, uh, right before he did The Frighteners, it was his last. Uh, well, I guess Frighteners was technically a New Zealand movie, but it was co-produced by Hollywood. But it's a movie that basically put Kate Winslet on the map, uh, wow. and it is a really great movie. Highly recommend it if you haven't seen Heavenly Creatures. But I think that I think that could work as a double feature for this as well. This movie's great because it's just like the neo-noir thing is like, you know, obviously we're, we're winding down here, so I'm not going to get all into that thing, but I would have to suggest, I, I almost, I, I talked to Justin and Todd about this before if we like recommend a version of a, a DVD or like if you should stream it, like we almost should have a segment on if it's worth buying a DVD. I will say that since Cinema Shock has started, I've been roughly most of the time buying the dvds of these things and blu-rays this is the 21st century i'm sorry the (laughs) blu-rays i apologize uh i've been buying the tapes of these things and uh the uh but this is the olive uh what it olive films yeah olive Olive films olive signature yeah version of uh bound is pretty damn good like it is really good legitimately good special features and some educational stuff that I enjoyed and them talking about the idea of where noir films came from out of world war two. And then the masculinity that was evolved and like trying to re- revitalize masculinity or like reimagine what that means. And 
I don't know. It's stuff I never thought about before. And then how neo-noir is like all about like reversing roles, which you can see very much the Wachowskis doing here. Mm-hmm. And I like that it does like that Blu-ray does have a lot of stuff that views the film from a more modern perspective, knowing where the Wachowskis lives and filmography would go after this. I oh like yeah. That. Yeah. I like sure. Um, it, it's even got, and I don't know if you had a chance to read it, Gary, but one of the, the kind of cool features on that Blu-ray to me is that um, there's a there's an essay on it written by Guinevere Turner. Guinevere Turner is a screenwriter who wrote um, her most well-known is uh, American Psycho. Oh, okay. she, she's a screenwriter behind American Psycho, but she uh, she's also acted. She's on the L word and things like that. So, uh, but yeah, she wrote an essay about this film that is, is really worth a read. I think that that is a really great Blu-ray though. I enjoyed it. I just, uh, I enjoyed the education I got from most of the special features and, and it's, it's interesting. I'm interested to, uh, I'm excited about where this series goes because I listened to the commentary track and I'll tell you something, the Wachowskis, uh, you know, uh, this has nothing to do with anything else other than the fact that like Justin said, right up off the top, they're nerds and you can tell they're not like real open people about no, they have to be that's, and then that's why they had to have Susie bright on that commentary to get them to talk. The literally, literally the commentary <laughs> until, until you get to like the last third of the movie where Gina Gershon, Joey pants, uh, Jennifer Tilly, they're all there. Susie bright. Like, until that, it's it's kind of a dead commentary. It's like they yeah. don't they don't know what to talk about, you or they don't. Out. They're just not open about that kind of stuff. Like, uh, you know, Susie Bright will ask questions to get them to open up about scenes and things like that. It's like, oh, why did you uh, do this shot? And they're they're very nonchalant about it and very almost self depreciating. Where they'll just be like, well, I mean, it looks cool, <laughs> and that's yeah. when when knowing deep down they they. Th- really think these things through uh they just don't feel comfortable talking about them on commentary you know they do and yeah yeah anything i'm saying i'm not like actually disparaging the wachowski no 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 it's they're 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 just not ones to talk about it yeah they just don't talk and you can tell they've got their own inside jokes with each other and that sort of Mm -hmm. thing but it's like when it when it comes to like trying to explain throughout a movie they're like not really into it Yeah. yeah Well, I mean, it's like I said, I watched a little bit of the I watched the Matrix and started getting into some of the special features on that. And even there, like they're kind of tight lipped about the stuff and just, yeah, yeah, they they're super not comfortable being in front of the camera at all. It's not their thing. (laughs) Yeah. So with the positive buzz around Bound, like we said, it didn't make a ton of money, but it was very clear that these film these were filmmakers to watch. You know, and they had garnered enough goodwill to get their next film into production, uh, one that would be considerably more ambitious than Bound. And that film, of course, you guys know the one we're talking about. So the the one film that's synonymous with the Wachowskis name, uh, it would go on to be easily their most profitable film and one of the most influential films of all time. Talking about it on our next episode here on Cinema Shock, of course, it's The Matrix. I'm excited. And that's, M- and that's M-A-T-R-I-C-K-S. That's it, Todd. Look that up. Right. Google it. <laughs> I feel like that would be the way a porno would do it. So <laughs> you could work your way in that way. Um, I'm I'm excited for this series mostly because I have not seen Confession Time. I've not seen any of the Matrix sequels since the theater. 
Wow. Like legitimately, I've not watched either Matrix sequel. I've never seen watched the Animatrix or anything. Um, I've seen them many times over the years. Uh, my wife's never seen the sequels. She had just watched The Matrix for the first time last year, which blew my mind. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it feels never, like it's like this. She had like, never seen it. Wow. It feels like it should have this, like, it's a it's a token of your existence from 1999 or something. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, yeah. Kat has seen this so much, she eye rolls at the suggestion of watching the matrix. I, I, I have a theory. Todd. I have a theory because my wife does the same thing. So your wife may be different, but I know my wife and my wife will tell me we just watched that to something we watched like <laughs> four, four years, years ago, ago yeah. or four <laughs> years ago. Yeah. And, and I feel like what it is, is like something sticks in their mind that they remember because you can, what you got to do is you got to ask, uh, elaborate on that tell me the story that happens yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> they fucking can't they can't ever do it like i can well, tell my wife right they now, being the your wife well i'll i'll save i'll save my, my yeah i'll save she'll my, do that all the time i'll save the story of the matrix and my wife cat uh for the next episode okay <laughs> well if you guys want to watch along with us uh, of course you can the matrix is easy to find you can stream it pretty much anywhere i'm uh, as of this it's easy recording, to find it's easy to find but no one can be told what it is justin uh, good good one todd um you know it's better that's better than johnny has the keys <laughs> just uh all, all you got to do is search for the red pill online. Yeah, so, yeah do not do that don't <laughs> search <laughs> say just type in red pill me on yeah yeah google Reddit, or something reddit.com slash r slash red pilling yeah yeah that's it. that no and don't please you'll know everything love of you god. ever needed to know and <laughs> hopefully you're not god, vaccinated uh, <laughs> <laughs> as of this recording they're all on hbo max right now so they are very easy to find uh but head to cinemashock.net uh you can always find links to everywhere that you can stream or rent these movies that we're talking about uh we'll often even put uh you know when i when i post the episode i'll usually have links to where you can buy the blu-rays and things like that at the bottom of the uh of the post so look for that cinemashock.net you can also find our merch there you can find our discord server there you can find all of our old episodes and series and, and pretty much everything you need to know about this podcast or the movies that we're talking about so you can also follow us at cinema underscore shock that's on twitter and instagram and all that stuff like us on facebook and where can you guys be found for our, our lovely listeners to follow you my wife is like is this the movie where keanu reeves says whoa yeah that's like, the one yeah. that's the only, is, one. the only one <laughs> this is that one uh i am at this is gary horn on all the social medias everywhere you can find me at tipw show is my wrestling show if you happen to like wrestling and you're listening to this uh, I don't know why you would be, but it could happen. There, there is crossover between wrestling and and movie fans, Gary. Most certainly, yourself is. is you are I'm a, a prime example, example of, of this. <laughs> and most wrestlers would love to talk to you. I can I can confirm. Most wrestlers would love to talk to you about movies. Uh, about yeah. They're entertainers. <laughs> And I have a, uh, a Star Trek podcast. If anybody's out there is interested in Star Trek, now that's a little less likely. <laughs> a little Nobody's going yeah. to do that. But it's called the Computer Resume Podcast, where we cover the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old. And you can find that anywhere you find podcasts. And you can hit us up on social media at Computer Resume. 
and I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials. He's still not uh, talking about the good shit yet, but it's coming. It's, <laughs> we're getting there. We're getting there. And I it's am. A, at- it's a long road getting from there to here. Oh my god! <laughs> I love it. That's the theme. Oh, uh, god. Rise. Uh, <laughs> and I am at Justin underscore Bishop. Again, follow the show at Cinema underscore Shop. And, and you know rate and review us on iTunes and all that stuff. Share us with your friends. If you got friends who are excited about the matrix four coming out at the end of the year, that that trailer just dropped like oh. this week and it's fucking awesome. I have uh, a theory and, and I'm, I'm going to record a mini episode and send it. Don't do it. Do it. And uh, so, yeah, I'm just glad uh, Keanu's got his normal look though. His John me too. Wick look. I, didn't, I didn't want that hairless Keanu from bill and Ted three. Nobody wants uh, that. In this movie. No, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, if you've got friends that are excited about the matrix four, you know, send them this series. I think they'll, I think they'll dig it. I mean, we're, you know, we're talking about obviously the whole matrix trilogy, but all of the Wachowskis films and their journey from the matrix trilogy to where they're going to be on the matrix four. So send it along uh, until next week, I guess. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. I'm a dead man, Johnny. I'm a fucking dead man. Guess again, Johnny. Who's the dead man? Who? Who's dead, fuckface? Who? Who? I can't hear you, Johnny. Guess again. Take another guess, Johnny. Take another fucking guess. Johnny has the keys. <laughs> I knew I you sh- were going to use the fact that there was a character named johnny in this to your advantage but i wasn't expecting such a spot-on joey pants impression i actually was really into that i'm gonna be honest with you todd todd i take a bow todd thank you mr todd a davis writer comedian actor thespian appreciate it appreciate it it was pretty fucking good i'm not gonna lie and especially seeing him do it live it felt it felt good i felt i was scared Nothing it felt like we've, we've only been building to this moment. Now we should kill it. I know. Nothing, <laughs> works, nothing works better on a podcast is, like a visual cl- gag, guys. Nothing wow, he's wearing like a Viking hat right now. No, he's, he's <laughs> well, it's Todd. He's fucking it up. <laughs>